to jump in here, I want to say that you mentioned uh, Rabbi Kinzer's book, uh, Post-Missionary Messianic Judaism. And in the title of that book, Rabbi Kinzer is, is making note of something that uh, until a certain point, Messianic Judaism only had the right to exist if it was missionary. The way it's been presented or understood sometimes is, is if we're putting on uh, black hats and coats in order to convert uh, somebody from, from a Lubavitch community or something like that, which is absolute nonsense. want to introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Sheldon. You can also refer to me as Shalom. I'm Hami. <laughs> this sounds way too complicated. <laughs> Just introduce yourself. And uh, yeah, I'm Yisrael. And uh, today what we're going to do is be talking about Messianic Kiruv. Now that uh, might not be a familiar term to you, but Kiruv is kind of just the, um, it, it's kind of the Hebrew equivalent of outreach. And uh, so we're going to talk about a little bit of the nature of uh, messianic outreach and kind of how that takes uh, a little bit of a different turn as an expression in uh, Beth Emanuel. And uh, before we jump in, though, I want to go ahead and talk a little bit about what I mean and kind of the background. So a lot of people know uh, the background of the messianic movement as Hebrew Christian Alliance of America or, you know, other Jewish missions organizations, you know, in the 19th century, where there's kind of an explosion of Yeshua belief uh, in the Jewish world. And so you have not modern day expressions of that, obviously, and you have kind of an, a spectrum in the messianic world. That's kind of one, uh, one end of the spectrum, if you will, that the reason why messianic communities exist maybe be in part if, because of authenticity and uh, re reclaiming the historical Yeshua, but a large part of it has been from the seventies and eighties and, you know, kind of the birth of the messianic congregations in the eighties was really to have a place to go ahead and culturally give an expression that is palatable to Jewish people. And so you can, you know, invite your Jewish relatives or neighbors or coworkers, etc., to a place where they're not just going to hear Jesus all the time. They're going to hear Yeshua, where they're going to see familiar accoutrements of the synagogue, uh, Talit, Tefillin, Torah scroll, perhaps. And really what's happened since then is you have, uh, you know, hint of uh, Rabbi Dr. Mark Kinzer's book, Post-Messianic Missionary Judaism. I think that's the title. Post-Missionary Post Messianic Judaism. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you, you kind of have this, you know, this post-missionary progression, if you will, although some people would see it as a, a regression or, but, uh, you, you know, you have this, this progression of basically Messianic congregations existing in free form and freestanding apart from any missionary activities. And there's almost kind of a, a different turn or different progression of what I would say is a different progression in the Beth Emanuel world. And today we're going to be talking about that. So that's a little bit of history, but we're going to be talking about Messianic, the Messianic Kiruv movement. And really where I want to start from is what a lot of people look at as the emphasis for outreach in general, evangelism, whatever you want to call it, is the Great Commission. And um, so let's go ahead and talk a little bit about that. And then next, I, where I want to go with you gentlemen is really talking about what the expressions of Messianic Kiruv would look like. 
uh, and what they do look like in Beth Emanuel and what the what we think that maybe they should look like for the future of the Messianic world. And uh, we'll just see where it takes us from there. So starting off with the Great Commission, we know that's in Matthew chapter 28. Our rabbi gives us or gives the apostles, and it's a little bit of a question, is it, does he give it to us still, or is it really a commission to the apostles themselves? It's understood in the church world as this is a commission for every believer. Uh, but the question is, okay, so he gives it to the apostles, and they're to go out to the ends of the world and the ends of the earth and to make disciples of Yeshua. Of That's all nations. The disciples of all nations. And so the question is, what does that really mean? What expression is that? Is that for the church to go ahead and establish itself in other countries, like we've seen, you know, kind of in the Middle Ages, that that was the expression of that model? Uh, or does it mean kind of the modern expression in the evangelical movement uh, to get people kind of sign on the dotted line, make that uh, salvation prayer? Or, you know, does it mean sending out missionaries far and wide to unreached people groups who've never heard about Christianity or Jesus or any of these things? Um, you know, so that's really the traditional models that we've seen historically in the in the church. But when it comes to the messianic movement, it's really kind of shifted. It's taken taken that to mean that okay, well, we're going to uh, reclaim the the identity of Yeshua, put him back within Judaism, and then go ahead and present that expression to the Jewish world. Mm. And so, really, that's kind of where we've come up to at this point. So the question is really an authentic expression of what Yeshua is talking about. Okay, so to jump in here, I want to say that you mentioned uh, Rabbi Kinzer's book, uh, Post-Missionary Messianic Judaism. And in the title of that book, Rabbi Kinzer is, is making note of something that uh, until a certain point, Messianic Judaism only had the right to exist if it was missionary. Exactly. And so... In, in previous generations, in the 1800s, um, we had these uh, Hasidish followers of Yeshua. A lot of people don't know that, by the way. And But it's a fact. And, the, and in order for them, they loved the Torah. They loved Yeshua. They loved doing mitzvot. And they, were, they wanted to live as faithful Jews. And many of them did, uh, swimming upstream all along, living between two worlds. Within that church structure, the only way that the the church at the time would allow them to exist is if they had some other reason than a love for mitzvahs, if they had some other reason to continue practice Judaism. They were permitted as long as they were practicing Judaism for the sake of reaching Jews. But you mentioned in there going out to all nations, Italians have never been asked, what's your excuse for remaining Italian? Hmm, interesting. And, and they've never been forced to say, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna remain a Roman Catholic because I want to, I want to reach Romans," or "I want to, I'm gonna be a, a Russian Orthodox Christian because I want to reach Russians." Uh, that's never been a requirement, but for Jewish people, it has been. Yeah, you know, I think that's a really good point. And uh, a little bit back, going back to the history of uh, Messianic Judaism and different expressions. And, uh, you know, kind of standing between both worlds. I know, Sheldon, you're uh, kind of an authority on Israel Pick. And I know mm -hmm. you've often talked about how he, unbeknownst to a lot of people, myself even, that he had a whole network of congregations. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Israel Pick came out of uh, the Reform Movement and he... Reform Jewish Movement. Yes. And he, he became a Christian very publicly. And later on, though, he, he decided as he was pouring through the scriptures, divorcing yourself from Jewish identity 
and Jewish tradition actually is doing a huge disservice to the nation of Israel and will ultimately like lead to them not even existing anymore. And so he he was very redemption focused and that Israel should be in the land of Israel. And he ended up inspiring lots of Jews that I'm sure uh, we, we don't have all the details, unfortunately, but I think he, he was drawing a lot of Jews who, who were believers in Yeshua, I'm sure, from that, that were in the churches. Uh, he had, he had uh, friends who were, who were missionaries, and he was drawing them toward an uh, observant and correct lifestyle, and also drawing people from the Reform movement as well within Judaism, and started a whole network, like you said, of synagogues. And his whole intention was that they were all going to move and start a messianic Jewish community in the land of Israel. And unfortunately, when he went to go scout out the land, so to speak, he disappeared. And we don't know what happened to him. Oh, wow. That's kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that that's the, the original mindset of uh, at least American expression, I think also in some other countries like Britain, et cetera. Um, and that was kind of the thought, you know, that's like, okay, well here, let's gather up all the Christians that were Jewish, uh, you know, Jewish identity, and let's go ahead and make our own places, you know, places for ourselves. And then let's go ahead and make a, make a bunch of communities like that, kind of network of communities would turn into the Messianic Jewish Alliance of America. And then later, the uh, Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations, and there's other organizations, of course, as well. And let's go ahead and have that. And then very quickly what happened, obviously, you have a, a, a huge influx of Gentiles, a little bit of a little bit of a conflicted, there you go, that's the word, conflicted um, position on that. Uh, very quickly, obviously, just in sheer numbers, you know, Messianic congregations that are, you know, maybe 50% or less Jewish. And, you know, most Messianic expressions are far less. You know, so then the question is, it's like, okay, well, is this really a Jewish synagogue? Is this, you know, can this really be called a synagogue where, you know, nine out of 10 members are not Jewish? And, you know, is this the right place for, for Messianic Gentiles, etc.? So that's, I think, a different topic that we'll get into maybe at a different time. But, um, Ami, you really touched on an idea of Messianic Jewish congregations and why do they exist at all? Mm -hmm. And um, really that they have to have an independent reason outside of just uh, Jewish evangelism for existing. Uh, do you want to touch that, talk on that a little bit more? Well, so I think uh, we've moved to, from the point one because the largely the church structure has broken down so that the church no longer has the influence that it once did. Information is more free-flowing. And Jewish people who have found themselves or awaken to the fact that they're Jewish and they've found themselves in Christian churches in recent years have been more free to express themselves as they wish. Um, so the church government it has become weakened over, uh, you know, the, in the last, you know, 70 years and people, ideas are flowing and people have said, wait a minute, we should Jewish expression because we love Torah, because we love uh, the uh, our Jewish people, because we... Um, because we want to get closer to Yeshua. There are all kinds of different reasons why people wanted to do those things. And eventually they necessitated synagogues where people are coming together um, to do those things. But I think it's important to realize that there's, 
in terms of people who identify themselves as as Jewish, mm-hmm. um, having any kind of Jewish background, a lot of different estimates, you know, maybe a million people in, you know, in the church, you know, writ large, whether it's Roman Catholic church or the evangelical or, you know, different kinds of um, other uh, denominational churches. Um, there's a million Jews. We'll just say, you know, it's a nice round number. And the question is just like, is that really their home? Mm-hmm. Should they really have a different home? And then I think that that was kind of the original expression, um, you know, in terms of, okay, well, you know, we need a home. You know, mm-hmm. the church is not really our home. You know, we can't really identify as Jews because largely, you know, either explicitly or implicitly we're told, well, that's not really, you know, what we do here. Right. So I think that touches on what it is that we do, practically speaking, reaching out to Jewish people who are uh, finding themselves within churches and doing my best to beautify the Torah and to draw them to it and, and also reaching out to Messianic Jewish congregations and saying, you know what, are you really done? Or do you have a bit further to go um, before you create, you've created something lasting uh, for your children and for your families? And so we've been working tirelessly. And, but um, the way it's been presented or understood sometimes is, 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 is as if we're putting on uh, black hats and coats in order to, uh, you know, convert uh, somebody from, from a Lubavitch community or something like that, which is absolute nonsense. Or also, I think there's also the accusation against Beth Emanuel as a community mm. um, in wanting to convert Christians to hmm. become Jewish mm-hmm. in the sense that of practice, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they're not, you know, ethnically Jewish, you know, in terms of formal legal conversion, mm-hmm. but, you know, to take on the Torah and that identity. And of course that was part of Beth Emanuel's history and, you know, back in the one law days, but that's, that's changed really since, you know, 2005, 2007, when they formally, you know, uh, made that, made that switch. And Beth Emanuel has really been a place to creating a space for Jewish people to come. And I think that that's an important narrative for why Messianic Jewish congregations should exist. You know, I think of the average, you know, uh, let's say Orthodox person, um, you know, like I know I've known people, you know, over my time in, in the Messianic world who are in Orthodox communities and they are followers of Yeshua, however that happened. And typically the narrative for that person is just that, well, there's really no other place for them to go. Mm-hmm. So they go into a church and the church has, you know, the the kind of narrative like, okay, well, you know, Jesus was against the Pharisees and that gets uh, extrapolated to, you know, Jesus is against the Jews. And now we have a new thing happening here. And so there's really kind of a stripping of your Jewish identity to assimilate into the Christian identity. And, you know, can you think about that? I mean, that's that's been a huge deterrent to Jewish people in the past to come into a church or come into any kind of belief in Yeshua. And the sense that, you know, maybe there's, they've uh, flirted with the idea of believing in Yeshua and, and they like a lot of things that he has to say, but there's really nowhere for them to go. Because, I mean, let's face it, you know, their entire lives are going to blow up. Without going into muddy waters, this idea of uh, one law, which uh, for people who aren't familiar with it, it was um, very popular, maybe early 2000s, late 90s, where people were realizing how important the Torah was. And it was largely a movement led by non-Jews who had fallen in love with the Torah. And they said, well, maybe we've been wrong all along. And it's not that the Torah is done away with. Maybe it's valuable for everybody. And then as this body of people, um, they said, okay, well, I'm in love with the Torah. I want, I want to put on a talit. 
I want to put on tefillin. I want to be like my master Yeshua. I want to be like my Rebbe. And I'm going to do everything that he did. And as they came in and grew in their knowledge of Torah, they realized that the very Torah that they had fallen in love with also gave definitions for distinctions. There's a Kohen, there's a Levi, there's an Israel, and there's also uh, a, a God-fearing non-Jew. And so when they got to this point, they said, oh, if I really love the Torah, well, then I'm also going to recognize my position as a God-fearing non-Jew. And um, those people, um, at least within the context of Beth Emanuel, said they put out the APB and they said, uh, if there are Jews who are followers of Yeshua and they want a safe place and they want to conduct a Torah service and they want to do these kinds of things, um, Hudson's for them. And they put out this, uh, this declaration and slowly people either started responding to it or we were forced here by God's hand. And now we're in this location. Um, but the question is, is we are so outreachy. That's obvious to everybody. But who is it that we've been outreaching to? There are hundreds of thousands of halakhically Jewish people who were born into the Catholic world, and most of them uh, don't have Jewish family names, uh, Shalom and uh, Israel, uh, and uh, Amic and... Uh, and was Wilson. It? Wilson. Mm -hmm. And there, there you go. They don't have Jewish family names because they're halakhically Jewish. It's their mother who's a Jew and not their father. They've got the last name Anderson. And so there are all of these people. Christensen. <laughs> There's some guys named Chris. I'm positive. So Chris Christensen finds himself in, in a uh, Baptist church somewhere, but he knows that his mother and his grandmother were Jewish. And uh, we have worked without end tirelessly to show uh, young Chris the beauty of the Torah. At the same time, um, we have been learning at Chabad and we have been going to different outreach centers to, to learn more and to grow in our Torah. And actually, we're indebted to them because we've learned that model of Kiruv to every single Jew from those organizations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's a very interesting parable that Daniel Lancaster gave a number of years ago called the, the snake and the toads mm. or the snake and the frogs. I can forget what he said. We'll just call it the snake and the frogs. And, you know, so the way the parable goes is that you have a snake and the snake says, you know, to all the frogs, it's like, hey, why don't you come over here and we'll hang out. And all the frogs are like, no, we're not going to go over there. You're going to eat us. And the snake's like, nah, we're not going to eat you guys. No, you know, don't worry about it. And so, you know, get one brave frog who goes over and then what happens? Gulp, he gets eaten by the snake. And so then what happens with all the other frogs? All the other frogs, you know, turn up their nose to any invitations, any further invitations. Uh, no matter how, you know, how many promises there are, like, no, we're not going to eat you. We're not going to eat you. Hmm. You know, all the other snake, all the other frogs rather know that, uh, you know, that's just, those are empty words. And that's, you know, a, a marshal, a, a parable for, what's happened with the church and the Jews, you know, so you get some interested Jewish people uh, in, you know, interested in Messiah, interested in Yeshua, mm. but there's really no place for them to go without getting quote unquote eaten. You know, their identities get swallowed up. And so, you know, maybe that Jewish person exists for, you know, one, maybe two centuries, but then through intermarriage, et cetera, and just, you know, rampant assimil assimilation to the, into the church culture, really they, they don't exist anymore. So it's, you know, it's kind of a miracle even that you do have Jewish families that still exist within the church. Wow, absolutely. And 
well, to speak to speak to that as a a, a personal uh, story, it was a a young Hasidish woman. If you're listening, don't worry. I'm not going to mention your name. Young Hasidish woman who who came to me and she said, uh, you know, Ami, do you ever watch Christian worship services on the internet? And I'm like, well, I don't need to watch them on the internet. I've I've experienced them in the past. Before <laughs> I became Jewish, I, I I dabbled in all kinds of things and I hung out in churches. And uh, she said, why can't our services be like that? Why can't we have that? And, you know, if, if, I was, if I was coming from this kind of paradigm where I believed that I need to missionize this young, young woman, I, I would have done so right then. But the last thing on earth that I would have wanted is for her to go and join some kind of church and lose her identity, destroy her family, and um, in the end probably be lost and not, not have anywhere to go. What I told her is that absolutely you should have that. You should daven ferociously. And, uh, and if, if the kinds of services that are going on in your Beit Knesset don't, um, don't provide space for some kind of passionate worship, we should do that at home. You should, you should struggle for Hashem and you should try to get close to Him and you should sing your heart out in whatever language that you, that you like. But, uh, but the main thing is, is to do it from a Jewish heart. And don't leave your people. Don't don't go off. You know, you you heard something on the internet that was beautiful, but um, because the reason why you appreciate it is there was truth there. But that doesn't mean that you need to leave your shul. Um, you need to search for the heart of God right where you're at. Yeah, I think that there's you know a reality, if you will, in terms of the Messianic movement that we have two parents. And, uh, you know, forget about who's who, you know, but one, one parent who wears the pants, yeah, exactly. You know what? One parent is really, you know, our, the larger Jewish world and the other parent is the Christian world, the larger Christian world. And there's beauty that we take really from both of them. I'm going to use just the analogy jumping off of a prayer. You know, there's really two parts of prayer. There's a body and a soul and the body a lot of times is, is the keva, you know, the, this, the structure if you will, of prayer, whether it's liturgy or just, you know, different kinds of themes in terms of uh, how one structures their prayer life. And then you have the kavanah, you have the devotion. And I really see that both of our parents, quote unquote, you know, Judaism and, and Christianity, they they both represent those two things largely. Mm-hmm. And you have expressions of, of both in, you know, in both communities, but then, you know, largely Judaism really is as, as been the champions of the the keva you know that structure you know maintaining a structure that's that's biblical it's bible verses you know hey we have a whole book of of praise songs already 150 of them the book of psalms you know so let's go ahead and, and use those as part of our expression of prayer whereas the christian church has a lot of kavanah has a lot of devotion which is what you're talking about that this lady this young lady recognized and but oftentimes it's without structure and there's kind of a reinventing in the wheel, depending on which Christian expression you're in, you know, whether it's a complete, uh, you know, uh, a complete um, adaptation, you know, in Roman Catholic services where, you know, they assume, you know, a lot of the, the things, you know, in terms of uh, from synagogues or from Liturgy. the temple service and, you know, and things like that. And, you know, pretty much, you know, adapt that to their services or whether it's something that's a little bit more free flowing, like, 
you know, an evangelical service or Pentecostal service or things like that. There's this, this devotion that a lot of times people find is absent in Judaism. And I think that's more what she's talking about. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's important. You know, there's another side to all of this, to Messianic Kiruv. Um, not just, not only Jews in the church, if you will, and attracting and creating a place for Jews outside of the church to, to feel that they can um, feel welcome. But I think that there's almost a Kiruv to the, to the Christian world. And, um, you know, Sheldon, I know you were instrumental in working on a project that came out of uh, FFOZ, First Food Design, um, with the Didache. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was a, a document that was kind of lost to history that, uh, that, that FFOZ has revived. And um, I know that that's been helpful to a lot of Christians who have wanted to seek, you know, authenticity and a connection to the apostles is not, you know, purely through the Roman Catholic Church or... Um, or the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church who've claimed that succession of the apostles. But, you know, something that that can actually be shown historically to be linked to the apostles. Um, Do you want to talk about, you know, some of your involvement with that that and, you know, maybe how, you know, as a leader of a Torah club, um, how you've seen uh, the return of of Christians to a lot of their their roots and and an authentic and historical expression of the Yeshua and the Gospels? The Didache was was a foundational text, like a text that when I started studying it over a decade ago, it really helped me see kind of the progression of how we, when I say we, I mean the, the where I was at the time in the church, how how it really did start in Judaism and then kind of faded away from that that point transitioned into something else uh, and eventually into what it is today. The Didache really does provide and and if you want to read the Didache, I highly recommend uh, the book uh, that FOZ, uh, First Fruits of Zion puts out. Shout uh, out called to the, Toby. The Way of Life by Toby Janicki. Uh, Toby Janicki. And yeah, I was, uh, I was consulted on that book um, and that was a great honor and it was a whole lot of fun. Um, but that work, the Didache, really does provide clarity for a messianic Gentile uh, to, you know, where exactly do I fit into Jewish community? You know, what's expected of me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's it's valuable even for messianic Jews. I think every messianic Jew should read The Way of Life. And uh, it, maybe there's some, some things in there that might... It might more be applicable to a Gentile, but I think it's important to know the heritage that we. This is part of our tradition. This is if you're if you want to know like what is what is what's our messianic tradition that goes beyond the 19th century. What's there? It exists. <laughs> what's interesting is that in every synagogue uh, of any stripe. Orthodox, conservative, reform, messianic, mm-hmm. whatever it is, there are non-Jews in those synagogues. Mm-hmm. There are people who also are happy being non-Jews in those synagogues, and many of them are Christians, mm-hmm. and they don't know. There's a, actually a document that gives them some dis- direction about uh, how they sort of coexist in that Jewish environment. That's mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah, and Sheldon, do you want to talk a little bit about, uh, just to give other people background in case they're unfamiliar, do you want to talk about the historical claim of the origin of this document and, and who wrote it, et cetera? Oh, I mean, you just have to know that the title of, of the work itself is, the, the, the word Didache means teaching or the instruction, actually. So really, it, it, you could translate it as the Torah 
of the 12 apostles given to the Gentiles, the, to the nations. Mm. So that's the title of the work you're saying? That's that's literally what the title is. Or the halacha. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so when, when was it purported to be written? Mm. It's very, very early. It, it, it may precede some of the books that we have in the canon of the New Testament. Oh, wow. So it's like a first century document is, is mm-hmm. what's understood. It, it, if we take it on face value and there seems to be reason why we should, mm-hmm. it's literally written by the apostles. So it's not a Roman Catholic work that was written, you know, later on in the church and, you know, the Middle Ages or something like that. Mm-mm. Nope. Okay. And, you know, jumping off from the reason why I wanted you to go into that um, is because I know you have experience in that. And that's mm-hmm. really been helpful for, as you said, a lot of Messianic Gentiles. Uh, you know, I want to give a, a, a marshal, a model for what I see as kind of uh, Gentile outreach. And that might sound kind of funny. It's almost like the reverse of, uh, you know, of like what we think about when we think about of outreach and, you know, the outreach to the to the Jews, like we talked about in the top of this episode. Uh, I think, you know, there's there's a there's an interesting mitzvah. It's called uh, Shabbat Veda, returning a lost object. So there's a mitzvah in the Torah that says that, it, you know, finders keepers, that doesn't exist in Judaism. Um, you know, if you find an object of value, something that you think that the owner would miss, that you have an obligation to go out of your way to return this lost object to the owner. And I really looked at, see that as a muscle for what the Messianic movement is doing in the church and what we here at Beth Emanuel are doing as well to the Christian populace at large, um, obviously through our virtual members, et cetera, you know, if they don't go here uh, locally, attend here locally. And, you know, so it's almost like we're returning a lost object to somebody. You can imagine walking down the street and, you know, your your wallet falls out of your pocket or your phone falls out. You leave your phone at Starbucks or something. And, okay, so, you know, I find a wallet. I find a, uh, you know, a phone or something. I have an obligation to go ahead and return that to the owner, even if they don't realize that they lost it. Mm. And, you know, so I really look at that as what the Messianic movement is doing to the church kind of the the modern Kiruv movement on, you know, that half of it is returning Yeshua, the historical Yeshua and the historical gospels and the historical expression, expression of the apostles and what that means from their cultural context and their, their context of um, their theology squarely within Judaism is returning that expression, that lost item that the church doesn't know that they lost. And, so I really see that as basically Gentile Kiruv, if you will. It's not like we're going out, you know, and telling everybody, okay, you have to believe in Yeshua, etc. These are obviously people who have a commitment to Jesus, have a commitment to Yeshua, to the writings of the apostles, New Testament, so-called, and, uh, you know, etc. So it's not, you know, obviously that we're going out and making nations of all, uh, excuse me, making disciples of all nations. You know, uh, I think, Ami, you, you can speak to that in, in a moment, but, you know, I think that's largely been done through the church and then, but the church has really lost something, mm. you know, they've lost, you know, a authentic expression of who Yeshua really is. And we're really helping them restore his identity. Mm. And it's almost really, you know, returning something to them that they've, they didn't know that they lost. And that's really interesting. Uh, uh, to branch off from that is that the Jewish people have lost something yeah. that needs to be returned to them. And that's Jews. Um, Going back to those numbers, hundreds of thousands, and and really, it's it's so much more than that. I think if 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 all of a sudden every person in the church 
who uh, was halakhically Jewish, just started... To, or even had Jewish identity. Yeah, just started to glow. I think it, there'd be a lot of very bright churches. Um, mm -hmm. And we have an obligation to return those people. Uh, if, if To hand a Jew over to the non-Jewish world is a crime. It's the selling of Joseph. And wow. um, every single time we tell someone, no, I'm sorry, you believe that the Messiah is a certain individual, you don't have a right to Shabbat. You don't have a right to Kashrut. You don't have a right uh, to Talit and Tefillin. You don't have a right to lighting candles on Shabbat. We are uh, pushing those people. We're selling them. We're throwing them a pit. We're tossing them away to, uh, to, the, to the Gentiles. There you know, is no halacha that says you can't believe in one Mashiach or another. We have, but there is uh, there. It is halacha that these people are obligated to Torah and mitzvahs. Mm -hmm. And all their generations after them, too. Absolutely. You know, there's a reclaiming of putting Yeshua back in his Jewish context, which is funny, he never left. <laughs> but, you know, obviously he has with his, his expressions in the church. Sure. And so putting him back into that context. And I'm glad you mentioned um, Joseph, Ami. Uh, so, Sheldon, I want to remind you of something that you said one time. It was mm. so impactful. And I'm going to jog your memory here a little bit. Okay. And then uh, maybe you can you can build on that. So, uh, you know, Joseph is, is such a pivotal mm. character, I think, for understanding Yeshua and understanding his expression. So here you have a you know nice Jewish boy, Israelite boy, whatever you want to call him. And, you know, he obviously got sold by his brothers. And he gets, gets prominence in a foreign land amongst the Gentiles, amongst the Egyptians. And all of a sudden he's dressed, you know, he gets, he gets the place of prominence, almost kind of like there's God and then there's Joseph. I mean, according to Egyptian theology, you know, where Pharaoh obviously being God and then Joseph would being his son, quote unquote. And, you know, so you have this expression of Yeshua in, in, um, in the person of Joseph. Now, the funny thing is, he looks completely like a Gentile. So much so, as we know the story is, story goes, that, that his brothers come to him and they don't recognize him because he looks just like a Gentile. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, and this is the, this is the, um, I think, I think that narrative has been understood within Messianic circles a lot and, and kind of tapped a lot. That's a, a, a familiar motif. But uh, a comment that you made, Sheldon, that I'm going to have you chime in, chime in after. Uh, after I jog your memory here a little bit, a comment that you said is just that, well, also he was blinded to the Egyptians. So his Jewish identity really was blinded to the Egyptians. Maybe he, oh yeah, he used to be Jewish. He used to be an Israelite, mm -hmm. you know, but now he's one of us. Now he's an Egyptian. And so just in the same way that Yeshua's Jewish identity has been blinded to Christianity, you know, Christianity has been blinded to his Jewish identity, I should say. And, you know, that's a very interesting observation. It was very, it was very eye-opening for me. And I think a very helpful way to talk about kind of where we see Yeshua in, you know, world history vis-a-vis -vis Judaism and Christianity today. Yeah, I just, I, <clears throat> it was apparent to me that, uh, that Joseph's identity is directly analogous to uh, the blinding and in the Christian worlds. The, the Christian world doesn't see Yeshua as Jewish or his teachings as Jewish. Or maybe he used to be Jewish. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, that the Jewish world doesn't, they, they see him as, as a Gentile. Oh, he's a Roman Catholic priest, right? Yeah, he's a Christian, right? He's, he, Jesus is a Christian, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which exactly. doesn't make any sense. Um, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus, yeah. yeah. But, but this shouldn't be surprising to us. This isn't because there's a ignorance on both sides. 
Hashem's hand is in this. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. That Paul says that there is a partial blinding. We mentioned this in the last episode, I believe, a little bit too. There's a partial blinding um, that's been put on the nation of Israel regarding the identity of the Messiah. But also flip that over because the church also today has a partial blinding. Hashem, though, in his wisdom, has used all of these groups uh, to carry on certain truths. Now, here, what I see is this is part of our kiruv, certainly not to further cause blinding. We should be trying to help reveal. As Jews, what is a Jew's Jew's job? A Jew's job is to reveal Hashem. We're here to reveal Hashem in the world. Uh, What we have as an opportunity of kiruv is to help take those blinders off. Wow. And part of our kiruv for the church specifically is to to help them see the the what does it mean that Yeshua is Jewish that the Torah is still valid that Israel is is still the God's chosen people what does that mean and then how does that impact their beliefs and the way they practice uh, and the way they they teach the Bible ultimately I think it should come back uh, around. Hopefully we can take these ideas that we have here in our community and in the broader messianic world regarding the true identity that the Messiah is not in opposition to Moses, God forbid. The Messiah... That's an important statement. Yeah, the Messiah and Moses, and when I say Moses, broaden that out, that's Judaism. Everyone who sits in the seat of Moses. Yeah, interesting. You know, um, shout out to Jacob Fronzak. Uh, you know he's uh, staff on the FFOZ leads a leads uh, hosts their podcast, and I remember a teaching that he said in I don't even I don't even know if he would remember this. It was so impactful to me, and it was you know maybe kind of an analogy you can take from what you're saying, Sheldon. Is imagine you have a best friend, and your best friend just happens to be the king of Sweden, right? And so, okay, so would you imagine if your best friend is the king of Sweden that you would ever say anything bad about Swedish people? Of course not. God forbid. And, you know, you'd love the Swedish people and you'd probably, you know, want to go ahead and learn learn the, the Swedish language and, you know, learn about their culture, learn, you know, maybe, you know, adopt some of the Swedish you know, traditional dress sometimes or, um, you know, eat some Swedish dishes and things like that. And you'd really see, okay, well, you know, my best friend is the king of Sweden. So, okay, I have an affinity with the Swedish people. I don't have to become Swedish, you know, but I mean, I can, but you know, that's not the point. The point is just that, that obviously, you know, that's who my best friend is. And so I'm seeing that I have a connection to the Swedish people as he is the king of the Swedes. He said that in the context of, as a pastor of a church, when he was pastoring a church, it was one of his sermons. And I think that that's really an important uh, an, an important thing to look at in terms of obviously the Christian or the Gentiles relationship with Yeshua as the king of the Jews, then obviously they have a connection and an affinity and they should have an affinity with the Jewish people. You know, that would just make sense. And we're speaking on very literal terms too. This isn't just theology. Yeshua is going to come back and he's going to be the world dictator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and we're throwing in our the benevolent with dictator. him. Benevolent <laughs> world dictator. The world emperor is coming back, and and we have set our allegiance with him. Yeah, and absolutely. Hopefully, we can bring others to also swear their allegiance to him. 
And, you know, we talked about uh, at the top of this episode uh, about the Great Commission. And, you know, really, I think that the Great Commission was obviously directed at the apostles. And, you know, from that, the church has gone out throughout all the world. And, you know, something like 2 billion people that named the name of Yeshua. I mean, that's still a fraction of the world, because if you think, you know, about like 7 billion, 8 billion people, whatever it is. So there's still a lot of work to be done in the world's uh, world scheme, if you will. What did he actually say? He actually said to go out into all the nations. And that's one thing I thought about when, you know, coming to Beth Emmanuel. When I came to Beth Emmanuel, there was no, uh, you know, there was no, not a large Jewish community. There was like, I think, you, Sheldon, and maybe one or in and uh, Tybee of Blessed Memory. And I think that was yeah, it. Kids. Of course, yeah. The E.B. family. And, you know, I know the Mitchell family, Tessa, has Jewish background as well. But, you know, that, there really wasn't a Jewish community here. And so I said, well, okay. You know, Yeshua said uh, to go and to, you know, teach all the, all the nations to be his disciples. And there's plenty of people from the nations here at Beth Emanuel. But I think that that's really... That's really our goal in the Messianic movement to carry on his original commission to go and make disciples of the nations. And in an odd way, you know, those nations also happen to be his followers as well. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a good place to go ahead and end for today. So thank you very much, everybody, for joining us. And until next time, have a great day in every way. God bless. <laughs>